Good morning and happy Monday, everyone. We are excited to have Lucy Thorpe, content writer and beauty industry expert on the Dilly Dally podcast. So Lucy, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule and coming on to share your story today. Oh, thank you for having me. So Lucy, on the Dilly Dally podcast, we specifically focus on creative careers as well as the beauty industry as a whole. And so we'd love to learn more about your career, how you got started as a writer, how you started navigating into the world of the beauty industry. So let's go back to that time where either it was maybe young in childhood or maybe as a young adult saying, I want to be a writer and I want to focus on beauty as a subject. So take mm -hmm. us to that point, please. Okay, yeah, so I've definitely always been interested in writing from a really young age. Um, it was like my little dream job from being a kid. I don't necessarily think I thought beauty writer. I think at the time I just knew you wrote books or you were like a reporter. So it was one of those things that I wanted to do. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, I kind of moved away from that a little bit. And I wasn't 100% what I wanted to do. Went to university, did a business degree ended up working in project management, which is amazing for some people and some people are really good at it. It wasn't my dream job at all. There was very little creativity in it, very little kind of, or quite a lot of, it was very process driven and there wasn't really anything more to it than that. So I started writing a beauty blog alongside what I was doing in my full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, kind of just as a creative outlet as much as anything. I already enjoyed beauty, you know, I loved the industry. Um, it was something that I was really passionate about. So I ended up creating a beauty blog, doing, you know, the content, the photography, socials, um, linking up with brands and stuff around it. Um, and from that, I ended up actually pivoting my career from project management into marketing, which encompassed a little bit of writing, not as much as I would have liked, but a bit of writing in there as well um, and gave me a bit more of that creative outlet back um, I kept the blog going alongside it and everything and then kind of got lost along the way ended up working in um, like finance and um, health and education before I circled back and ended up as a marketing lead at a beauty brand so for me it just ticked every single box that I was like great I've got a ton of marketing experience, beauty brand, amazing, everything I wanted. However, um, throughout my marketing career, I'd kept doing freelance work on the side, so and predominantly beauty, because that's where a lot of my interests were and where my portfolio um, was building up, basically. So I kind of did little bits and pieces on the side um, when I was working throughout. And then... Uh, it's so stereotypical. I think there's a million people with this exact story. Yeah. Pandemic hit, we went into lockdown and everything. And I just started to think, what do I actually want to do? Because obviously moving more into a senior role, management role, you do less of the hands-on stuff and more of the telling other people, can you do that? Can you do that? So I was telling other people to write content, you know, I was hiring people to do it. And I was just a bit like, I kind of want to be doing that. <laughs> like, I'm sort of ah. to other people, but I'm a bit like, no, no, I'll, I'll do that. That's fine. But You're like, um, I want to write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was a bit jealous. Um, so during yeah. lockdown, um, obviously, 
we all spent time away from the office and spent a bit more time, I think, thinking about what we wanted to do. I'd had a lot of friends and colleagues over the years that had said to me, you'd be really good working for yourself or like you could definitely do this freelance. And um, I was just always a little bit scared, to be honest. Um, obviously, you leave behind a bit of financial security and you don't necessarily know that you're going to be able to build up that client base or anything like that. But yeah, pandemic came, sort of ruffled everyone's feathers and I was just like, do you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. If I don't do it now and I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to do it and I think I'll end up in 10 years' time thinking, hmm, should have done that. So um, that's what I ended up doing, basically. I spent a horrendous month doing my full-time job and building up my freelance clients on the side. So I was essentially working two jobs basically and I definitely don't recommend to anyone listening that you do that because it's it's not good it's not That's good a lot. Health, yeah think. you're probably um, probably weren't sleeping and you have a lot of screen time no, at that point. And it was a lot of oh wait I've forgotten to do this thing like I need to do that and then I'm I would sure. get home from work carry on working on my freelance stuff um but yeah after about a month I was conscious that the money side was stacking up for me um the work that I was doing, I wasn't struggling to pick that work up because I'd kind of got this portfolio on background. Mm. So when they called us back into the office for my full-time job, I was like, got some news, I'm, I'm actually going to have my notice in. And I'd not been there that long. So I think um, everyone was a bit surprised. To be honest, I was surprised. I didn't, I didn't plan that that was going to happen. Um, so yeah, I ended up handing my notice in and then worked for another month, kind of juggling both. And then, um, yeah, that was it. I was freelance um, wow. out kind of in the world, panicking slightly about money and clients and everything else. But um, it but you took that risk and you, you took the courage to say, I can, I do have a great portfolio. I am a talented writer and I know what I do is in high demand. So if you make it they will come so and it's such a integral part of the beauty industry and any brand that you're building is building that brand voice and writing whether it's captions on social media or describing the product on sephora.com or that headline on a landing page of what will make mm -hmm. a person go shop or turn to the next beauty brand so you're an integral part of the entire marketing process of these products yeah definitely and i think that's something that People outside the industry or outside of marketing don't necessarily get that. They'll be like, so what is it you do? You you write for beauty brands. What does that even mean? And I'm like, well, mm. just think about your average beauty brand. There's packaging copy, website, mm. social, PR, sort of thought leadership stuff. There's even like white papers and research papers and stuff like that. I'm like, anything that's writing to do with the beauty industry, and I do a bit of fashion as well, um, I, I write it basically um, you obviously get some writers that do specifically copywriting some that do content writing and some that do like editorial stuff but I cover all three of them so um, it's a good way to stay in demand and keep your skills up to date but also it means that you, when you're trying to explain what you do to people it's a lot easier for people to get it mm -hmm. that's a great explanation too I think a lot of times people outside the industry think beauty is a place for people to play with makeup all day and like it's not and then they get into the details like this is a massive industry 
uh, we're up, you know, despite economic downturns, which most mm-hmm. industries can't say. And it is a way for so many people to start brands and grow them within the industry and for these heritage brands to keep innovating. And then they realize, wow, this is a real industry and this is this is impactful. It's the same way CPG is or personal care. It's yeah. very parallel to that. Oh, absolutely. Um, that is interestingly, that's feedback that I get sometimes is, you write about beauty? Like, mm. what, what do you write about? Just lipstick? And I'm like... And you're like, oh, it is so much more, so much more. And especially now, do you feel that there's a, a big uh, demand on the side for skincare too? And even if someone, let's say they're not into makeup and it's never been their thing or um, it's intimidating to them, everyone has skin. Skin is your largest organ. You need to take care of it, whether you're into anti-aging or you just want to stay healthy. So do you feel clients are coming to you to really, one, explain their skincare and differentiate it since there is such a, yeah, you know, completely. overnight, you know, such madness attention on skincare and all the different forms of skincare and clean skincare. Yeah. So again, I think that's something that everyone focused on during the pandemic because we were kind of mm-hmm. just sat at home thinking, well, what what can we spend money on and what can we do and take this time? So skincare definitely grew during the pandemic and that's continued. Um, as a marker, you could argue that it's oversaturated because it feels like there's new launches all the time and there's... Um, kind of new products popping up constantly, but a lot of them fit in a need where there's a space for them, basically, whether that's sort of them are science-focused or acne-focused or Mm -hmm. they're aimed at a specific demographic. I think we're definitely moving towards a point where people are looking for personalised skincare or as personalised as they can get. They're not necessarily just going along to the drugstore or whatever and being like, mm, I'll get that moisturiser, I don't really care about it, it does what it needs to do. I think people are actually looking for solutions-based skincare now, which I'm definitely seeing reflected with the brands that I'm working with and definitely seeing it in terms of client demand as well. Like a couple of years ago, there was kind of a big push for acne positivity, for example. So, you know, you don't need to feel bad about your skin, like you can have acne and just show off your natural skin and you don't need to worry about it. Whereas that's quietly gone away a little bit more. And I think people are looking at that solutions focused skincare for acne. They're looking for treatment. They're looking for routines that will fix it rather than being like, well, this is just my skin. This is what it's like. So definitely solutions based, definitely as personalized as possible and targeted. So, one of your roles as a content writer is to stay up to date with trends and to stay ahead of trends. How do you tap into these trends and you know when is something overdone and to move on from the next and when to really focus on something and thrive in the times, as they say, on social and really, you know, get the tailwinds? And I'm sure clients come up to you, too, and they might have heard of a trend too late in the game and you're trying to steer them onto something next. So. How do you navigate the world of trends, especially in beauty and writing? Yeah, definitely. So I keep really up to date with stuff, which without sounding cheesy, it's easy because I'm interested in it. For example, if I was trying to keep up with trends on a topic that I just didn't care about at all, it would feel like hard going, I think. Whereas because I'm already interested and engaged, it's no hardship keeping up to date with news. I tend to follow a lot of um industry newsletters, websites, social pages, um, as well as brand ones as well. 
And I do um, research with like Google Trends and um, search tools as well, which that's sometimes really interesting. Like for example, Clean Beauty or Vegan Beauty, you can see the growth in that over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can sometimes be good for spotting trends and good for kind of working out where you are in terms of the peak of that trend and if it's a bit overused. There was a certain, I can't quite remember what it was now, but there was a certain point where every client that came to me with like a skincare brief, they were almost like a little bit interchangeable. You know, it would be like, oh, well, we focus on clean beauty, sustainable packaging. We're focusing on women aged 25 to 50 and um, our ingredients are all vegan. And I'd be like, and you're like, well, the, the last brand was the same thing. So yeah. is it, that is your expertise. So as someone who's looking at the in the beauty industry as a macro view, I totally agree. There's a lot of people that come into the industry, whether they're a dermatologist, whether they used to be a product development expert at a beauty brand, whether they used to be a publicist within fashion beauty or just total outsider. And they, mm-hmm. a lot of times they do think they can start a brand. It's really easy. And they put up a few social ads. Here we go. But now as we're seeing ads are becoming more expensive, there are more brands. Industry is super saturated. Uh, There's so much competition working with influencers the way we did in 2015, 2016. It's very different than we do now. Everyone's they're expensive. And there's also the rise of the micro influencers. But do the micro influencers Mm -hmm. have the reach of that target niche that you're looking for? So when a beauty brand, especially maybe a skincare brand that sounds interchangeable between the next, when they come to you, and they have very similar sounding terminology and taglines to the last brand, how do you sit with them and say, let's craft this unique story, whether it's the founder's story or the the way they're curing eczema, or it's a way of anti-aging without using harsh chemicals. Like, How do you get to that root story to say, it is so vital that you stay unique and really stand out in this saturated industry? So it's usually through having a conversation with that client and kind of going quite in depth into the reasons they want to start the brand, the unique selling points from their perspective versus kind of their formulation process or um, versus kind of their industry background or the demographic that they're targeting. And sometimes they're almost like too close to their brand to spot some of that stuff. So for example, Recently, there was a brand that I worked with where it was a brand new startup brand. So um, the founder had a ton of makeup industry and skincare industry experience. Um, and she wanted to start a brand that was focused on like myth busting and the truth behind, you know, like, because that's sometimes what's hard to unpick in the beauty industry, kind of what's marketing versus what's yeah. actually going to be good for your skin and sometimes that's the differentiator a brand might just have a really strong marketing but she really didn't want to capitalize on her experience and her knowledge um she just wanted to put a brand out and be like well this is everything about this brand's true I was like right but we probably need to take it back a step and even if you're not comfortable putting yourself forward and being because some brands do that really well as well they're kind of have the brand founder that's front and centre of everything. She didn't want to do that. And I was like, but we are going to have to weave that into it, that the reason for the brand being is your expertise, experience, seeing firsthand 
people ruining their skin barrier, people who are um, using the wrong products for their skin type. So it's kind of through those conversations really and getting doing quite a deep dive with them about their brand and then looking at the wider market as well to kind of see um, what's been done before, what's already happening out there. Because quite often as well, you will get a client that's like, oh, well, we just want to be like X for a different kind of skincare category, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So a bit like the old thing that, for a while, I think every brand that was pitched was like, oh, it's like Uber, but for blah. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of that that goes on. Um, and quite often, it's just having that conversation and being like, well, they're them and they're doing what they're doing. Like, how can we make you stand out? Because although dupes are a massive thing in beauty and obviously people are looking for more affordable alternatives, it's not always about that people are quite often looking for something fresh and interesting innovative and um yeah like you say it can be a particularly oversaturated industry so if you've got 10 brands that are exactly the same doing really similar things you need to just unpick that story and quite often that's working closely with the founder and working Mm -hmm. out well actually what is different and if you take yourself out of the equation you have never heard of your brand before why would someone actually buy it? And some of the results that come out of those conversations are really interesting. That is, it's true. It's like if you step away from your brand and say, why would someone grab for this on the shelf at a Sephora? Or why would someone Google this product? Or why would someone really go to the next step if their friend referred mm-hmm. them to it? What is that defining differentiator that will let them make that purchase? Yeah, so vital and copy. So we talk a lot too within the world of, content writing, beauty, marketing, of AI, and what how AI is affecting the industry. There's definitely people on the spectrum of they're super, super nervous, that they say it's taking away everyone's jobs, and there's other people saying it is a tool that will help brainstorm. So what is your take, especially as a beauty industry expert and a writer, what is your take on AI in writing as a whole, but also the beauty industry and, and just a bird's eye view yeah so it's quite interesting if you work in for example like tech or writing it feels like everybody's talking about chat gpt everyone's talking about ai tools and kind of you know it's gonna rip the industry apart and all the rest of it if you speak to anyone outside of those circles they're almost like what are you talking about um so I think it's easy to get caught up in a bubble and feel like, oh my God, there's all this hype around it. Like, what are we going to do? When in actual fact, um, and I don't know if you've ever tried any of these tools because I've had yeah, to play around. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, know your enemies. <laughs> so yeah. I've had to look around. And, um, they're very clever the way that they pull together the information, but the problems they have, and this isn't just me being a bit of writer either, <laughs> trying to, um, they kind of make stuff up. So where there's gaps in their knowledge or they pull things from the wrong place, maybe, maybe make it up's not quite right, but you have to fact check thoroughly mm. because, yeah, where it's got gaps, it'll just make things up to the point where some of the tools fake links as well. So they'll fake mm. a source and be oh. like, oh, this is the reference link that this comes from. And when you actually go into it, the link doesn't exist and never has existed. Uh. Mm. Um, And obviously there's some copyright stuff going on at the moment, I think in Mm -hmm. the court, because 
it's pulling all that information from somewhere that's been created by someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, it, it's not quite there yet in terms of natural conversational flow, no matter what prompts you use, no matter, you can't just put that stuff out kind of raw to a client, to an audience, because it just doesn't read right. Um, don't get me wrong, there's definitely some stuff that it's really useful for. Like I had a data-driven piece that I had from a client that um, had a load of different locations, so maybe 50 or 60 different cities, mm. and I had to work out which county they were all in. So yeah. I can do that manually. It could yeah. take me probably three hours, or I can put it into an AI tool and say, can you tell me where all these are? And it did it within 10 seconds. Mm. So for stuff like that, where you're using it as like a supplementary tool to help you write him, I'm not mad at it, to be honest. But I think the challenge is where you're getting people who are kind of selling this, oh yeah, you could make thousands. You just put some prompts into ChatGPT, it mm. spits it out, and then there you go. Like you just send it to your client. It doesn't work like that. Mm. It really doesn't. And I do some editing for other writers as well. And I can spot a mile off if something's been written with AI, even if it's been edited afterwards, you can spot it. You really Mm -hmm. can. Um, And I'm not in any kind of illusion that that won't get better over time. I would assume that the technology will get better over time. But I think the lower end of the market maybe that might be affected by ai so the kind of stuff that would typically be generated by content mills for example that pay Mm. a really low amount to the writer that writes it um and usually like it's pretty low quality stuff as well i think that'll really be affected by ai um and i think kind of like really generic content will potentially be affected by AI as well. But I think copywriting, the stuff where you need that human element to it. Definitely. Um I think And especially from like a sales like a sales perspective from whether mm-hmm. it's you know top of the funnel to bottom of the funnel, you are selling through emotions or through a promise, whether it's going to change your skin tone or it's going to preserve your youth. You're you're drawing to people through experiences that you've lived through or you see or that you've heard of from other brands and while AI might be able to pick that up years from now right now it just does not have that human connection on top of you know the lack of reliable sources and the copywriting issues and um, someone recently was saying that the, the way they use their commas is is one obvious giveaway if it's written by it chat GPT. So yeah, I thought that was they, they kind of for some reason ChatGPT does everything with Oxford commas all the time. Mm. Um, that's obviously used more in the US than it is in the UK, but that's one of the clearest things for me. If I spot yeah. that something's full of Oxford commas, and I also spot like certain phrases or a bit of random capitalization and stuff, I'm like, hmm, mm. interesting. Yeah, I and then you start to notice the same phrases turning up all the time, and you're like, mm. okay. I know where they yeah. came from. They also really like their bullet points too. In writing. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like a yeah. business memo. I'm like, that's good for an email, but maybe not for, oh, well, I don't know. It's, well, that's it, because it's just gathering the points from somewhere. It's like, how can yeah. I show all this stuff that I've 
collated yeah. really easily. Oh, bullet points. Versus but, telling a story and, and making mm, that connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my other thing for it as well is I think that will further add to the sort of homogenization of brands and content yeah. as well. If it's all pulling from the same sources and if you've got something brand new and innovative, chat GPT isn't going to be able to unpick that because it's pulling from all data. So mm-hmm. that's Great the other thing to kind of be mindful of. So I'm, I'm under no illusion that it's going to change the industry, I think the writing industry particularly, but I'm not overly concerned at the minute. Come back to me in like 10 years time and we'll see what, what's there happening then. But that's a great yeah. point is that it doesn't have that, quote, inventive spin mm-hmm. to it. It's not, it's going to pull from other, everyone else. And it's, it's kind of like the, you are the person who has like the, the horse blinders on. You're looking at the future and you're thinking for yourself versus chat GPT and all these AI writing tools are the horses like looking left and right and getting distracted and doing something else that everyone is doing. And there's a reason why you have to look at the point ahead because otherwise your brand will end up like everyone else's and we see that a lot too within content Uh, a lot of people come to us or visual content um, they'll say this brand's doing this I want to recreate this product image or I want to recreate this video and and I think there's great ways of using videos or photos as references saying I really like the sun in this photo or I really like the fast pace of this video it's great for performance right now and it's working based on analytics but we always remind people you need to think for yourself. You need to think of what works for your brand because maybe this celebrity driven brand, this is what they were doing, but it might not be the tone of the video. It might be because of the celebrity. So let's go back to your brand, like what makes you unique. And it is maybe you genuinely have this efficacious product that is going to, you know, reduce the psoriasis. Like let's get to that story. And maybe it started in the field in France and, or your grandfather was an herbalist. Like, let's get to those stories yeah. that not everyone else has the opportunity to tell because they don't have that. So I think yeah. within your role in writing, it's about extracting those stories that people either, one, might not notice that they're important. Two, they don't know how to tell in an eloquent way. And three, it's a way of building emotion within that point of sale and building mm-hmm. a brand and that brand ethos. So on that note, in terms of, the brand voice, how would you, what advice would you give to a brand founder, whether they've been in business for 10 years or they're just starting out in their brand? And they said to you, how can I build a brand voice? What are exercises I can to get into that more complex human element, last for a lifetime, you know, build that mode around their brand? What advice would you give to them? So a really good starting point is literally to just start out with the key points that your brand sort of stands for or that is where you want to be. So that's kind of always where I would start those conversations. So it's like, however, the challenge with that sometimes is you'll get three or four things that people always say. So honest, trustworthy, science. Um, So you kind of have to dig a little deeper with that and kind of okay so you're saying science what bit is it about science that you're wanting to get across like are you formulated by experts you know are you you know that kind of thing um and then from there I would recommend like what you've just said 
taking a look at some of the brands that are out there and those conversations that they're having with their audiences and how they're coming across as well. And again, not to copy or not to kind of directly lift stuff from them, but just to get a feel about how, because what I see quite often is brands that won't have a cohesive voice. So they'll have started out with a bit of a voice, moved it to something else, but never kind of married them all up. Um, And I think when you get a brand to look at a brand with a cohesive tone of voice versus something that's kind of just been muddled together over time or that a brand founder put together initially and then over time other people have worked on it and it's all kind of got a bit out of control, you can see the strength in that a lot more. Um, And obviously you can tweak your tone of voice for different platforms and you're going to have a very different way of coming across on TikTok, for example, to... Mm -hmm. LinkedIn or your email sort of point of sale stuff um but you can still weave those messages through everything as well um and I think as well putting together a tone of voice document I know some people are just like oh don't need that like but oh it's worth it's worth not underestimating how useful that can be as a reference point, especially if it's not something that you're familiar with, because mm-hmm. it's until you get used to it, or if you're working with different agencies, different people, different freelancers, you've always got that there as like a, a reference point of this is how we talk about stuff. So that's something that I work on with brands, sort of pulling together their tone of voice document that it'll have examples of how they speak um, on different platforms it'll kind of have some do's and don'ts in there it'll have key content pillars that kind of everything that they talk about in brand conversation comes back to um Mm. so again it's having those conversations with the brand themselves and just digging deeper into what they want to pull that tone of voice out because two of the most common tones of voices that i get given as reference points are Frank Body. Don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, I do. Frank Body and um Aesop. Um, oh yes. Mm-hmm. So they're two quite different very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but two different of, customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So any sort of startup brands that have got a younger sort of fun demographic, nine times out of ten they'll be like, oh we want to talk about Frank Body. Yeah. And then the ones that are a bit more kind of zen, wellness-based, they're the ASOP ones. And it's interesting the amount of times that those two come up. So anyone who's thinking, I want to look at some tone of voice examples, have a look at those two and and see what you think of them because they're the two that come up the most often, which is just really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good starting point too of like which brand and then you like branch off from there of it is like the young and the fun and the attainable or is it more the um luxury zen yeah not so much in your face they're very different they both have their places yeah and that's the thing that comes from these conversations as well because what's approachable to one person isn't to another so it's it all goes back to the target audience as well so i mean i've worked with a brand before that wanted a really cheeky tone of voice so like frank body but almost like a little bit more graphic if mm. that makes sense yeah. um and i was a bit like 
I don't think that your target audience of women, like younger women, I don't think this is going to resonate with them at all. It feels quite early 2000s kind mm. of reality TV mm-hmm. and we moved them away from that and I think it worked a lot better for them but yeah even their brand name and everything it was a bit like <laughs> and that's where you come in that's where you come in with your expertise of not yeah, only having and- like the command of the English language but also what is working in the industry now what's worked you know a few years ago and just because something was trending 10 20 years ago it could be honestly it could move people away from a brand right now and and even we see within tiktok what's working six weeks ago might not be working right now and so these trends are turning over faster and faster but we're also seeing different micro groups so there's it's not just like one product for everyone it's really like you said it's like that personalization customization earlier that is such an integral part of this industry is that there is there are so many brands and there is something for everyone. Yeah, but how do you keep them separate? Yeah, I've seen some stuff recently as well. And it's quite recent research that suggests that smaller independent beauty brands are kind of having a harder time to come mm-hmm. up at the moment just because of the costs and everything. And I think because of that personalization as well. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely ways and means of getting to your target audience and being able to reach the exact people. And, and something like TikTok is really good for that because it's so curated and so kind of algorithm-driven. Mm-hmm. There's that AI, AI argument again. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of about getting your stuff in front of the right people, and that is quite often where tone of voice comes into it um, because if people read about your brand in you know, like online or something, or see it on social, and then they go to your website and it's quite jarring the way, mm. or something that's quite common, I think as well, going back to what you were saying about people thinking that the beauty industry is easy, they've got a bit of experience in it and anyone can do it and like, why can't they? You see a lot of people trying to um, DIY a lot of stuff for their first brand. And while I get it, and I get the reasoning behind it, I think sometimes they almost get in the wrong way by doing that. And I'm I'm not just saying that from the perspective of a freelancer, like, you know, buy my services and, you know, you don't need to do it yourself. But some stuff you can DIY and mm-hmm. it can work, but other stuff, I think you can run the risk of doing your brand more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you try and go cheap on formulation or try and bypass some sort of regulation or something it's a mess it will come out later it will definitely Mm -hmm. it's like just be super organized from the beginning and Mm. it's like no know where you can invest in and what you need to do on your own but knowing that you know spending money like hiring someone who is a freelance copywriter or hiring an agency or hiring an art director or hiring a product development specialist that will take you farther in the long run yeah, definitely. And you can almost see the evolution with some brands, particularly with imagery. They kind of mm-hmm. go from these self-shot images that someone's obviously taken on an iPhone or something mm-hmm. in a, a nice-looking office yeah. versus when they start to invest in professional photography and kind of that brand mm-hmm. elevation. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to see that. And it's something that it's easier to see than ever before because everything's so accessible. So, like, you can just 
scroll back on a social feed for a bit longer and see. It's true. Every, you can find a lot right now on the internet. It's oh, true. Yeah, definitely. So Lucy, as we wind down this podcast, uh, one question we love to ask everyone is where do you sit in the stands in your life? And this means, is there any place that imagine you're watching a sports game and you're, you're watching the football team and you're saying, Oh, he should have thrown the ball to that person that would have, he would have, you know, changed the game, but you yourself might be sitting in the stands looking at your life saying, is there something I wish I, I can pursue? I want to do it that I'm just, I've either given excuses of why I can't, or maybe I haven't found the time, but is there anything coming up that you're looking forward to? And you're saying, I will finally do this. That's always been on my bucket list. Interesting. Do you know what? There isn't at the moment, because I've just ticked a load of them off. Um, That's great. Nothing necessarily huge, but it's stuff that I've been putting off for ages. So, you know, like um, matching up with some clients that I really wanted to work with, doing stuff like investing in my business. Like I've just got headshots taken for my business, which is my idea of hell. It's not something that I like doing at all, but I've just done that last week. because I was like, you've been putting this off for ages. You're rolling out the same old selfies that you've been doing for ages. It's not professional. Let's sort it out. Um, And then kind of just working in different spaces and stuff as well. So there's no big regret that I'm kind of stood thinking, right, I need to push myself and I need to do this. Because I've kind of tried to push myself the last 12 months or so to do some things that are just going to elevate things to the next level. But Mm -hmm. if I'm looking back, if I'm in the stands sort of a couple of years ago, I kind of wish I'd gone freelance sooner, basically. Um, If I could look back and kind of just give myself a little nudge, maybe 12 12 months, sort of two years earlier, I'd have done it then because the sort of opportunities that I've had being freelance and the whole work-life balance thing, like don't get me wrong, it's not always amazing work-life balance because holidays, you kind of pay for them twice if you want to take time Mm -hmm. off. But yeah, the work-life balance, the kind of being in control of what I'm doing and um, just the flexibility. I'm like, yeah, should have done that a little bit sooner. But here I am. So yeah. And that's so great that you look back and said the decision that you made is such a positive decision and had such a great impact on your life from not only your yeah, career absolutely. and profession, but also for your personal life and having that balance. And if there is advice you could give to someone who comes up to you and says, Lucy, I am a creative and I am in-house at a brand, a big company, and I'm looking to go freelance. Should I go freelance? And what advice would you give to this person looking to make that leap? Yeah, so I think the best advice that I would give is to think about your portfolio at this point, because that's ultimately what a client will look at and what you will base your future work on. Um there's arguments about whether you need to niche or not so that means having you know like an area that you specifically work in as a freelance writer I don't believe you have to have one but I think it's a lot easier to match up with your ideal clients and your portfolio and do what you want to do by doing that and then the other thing I would say is give yourself a bit of time to kind of run into it so whether that you spend three months saving up some money three months building up some clients on the side because I think the worst thing that you can do when you go freelance is sort of quit your job on Friday, be freelance on Monday, 
mm-hmm. and just be like, I don't know what to do now. I've got no yeah. clients, like I've got no money coming in. Like I still need to pay my rent or my mortgage or whatever. So I think the best thing to do is, as tempting as it is to do that big dramatic, guys, I'm going freelance, build up to it over time because there is going to be periods, especially at the start, where you feel a bit shaky or you feel like you're a bit quiet. So that those would be my three main sort of um, tips, really. So, yeah. It's great advice. Definitely. It's like give yourself a runway before you take off and give some security blanket because you are, you'll be on your own, but you're building a better lifestyle for most people. Yes. There's some people that might not be the most well suited for freelance role, but if you have that energy and like the the hustle to go find clients and then you have that portfolio and you know, you have that skill set, that confidence will show. And it is, it is always someone looking for someone to help supplement their their team and bring on the expertise that might not be within their own cohort so yeah it's amazing definitely. well thank you lucy it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and thanks so much for sharing everything about becoming a content writer going freelance ai and how you're really navigating you know keeping your genuine brand voice whether it is to stay separate from ai and, and have that really custom high quality content but also to help these brands build their brand voice and navigate such a saturated beauty industry and to build the powerhouse of branding through writing. So thank you so much for coming on today, Lucy. We appreciate your time. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lucy.